0: Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate, and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I've been abandoned by everyone. We don't have John Pot today. We don't have Lauren Evans today. And you already know the sad story of everyone else who left me. No Rachel, <laughs> no Travis, no 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 one. But it's not really no no one. Of course, someone's here helping. We have a new face in the studio today. Her name's Sandra. I don't know much about Sandra. I just met her last week. But she's, uh, I think you're an intern
2: here at the Heritage Foundation, is that right? Yes, I'm a digital productions intern here.
1: So we have turned the production of the Power Hour over to an intern. Now that's not saying anything about Sandra or interns. What it's saying about is the high quality type people. Come to the Heritage Foundation to learn how think tanks work, and there's no better example of that than Sandra. Sandra, I don't even know your last name. Who are you?
2: Um, My last name is Scarlatiu.
1: Oh God, I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't try to say that because, as the Power Hour listeners know, I can't say complicated last names. So I'm going to try it though. What is it again?
2: So it's Scarlatiu.
1: Scarlatiu. Yeah. What kind of name is that?
2: Um, Yes, it is Romanian. My father is from Romania. My mom is actually from Korea. Okay. They met when my dad was studying in Korea at Seoul National University. Got married, had me, came, well, traveled around Europe a little bit and then came to the United States. So.
1: Okay. So what brought you to the Heritage Foundation? A love of freedom, I'm sure. Yes, (laughs) absolutely.
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things. I was studying political science and dance as a double major. Um, Political science
1: is sort of a dance (laughs) of sorts.
2: That's that's a good way of putting it. for sure. Um, No,
0: dancing is much more rigorous. Mario, you have not been introduced yet. No one knows who you are.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's Mario Loyola, folks. We'll be introducing him in a moment. I'm sorry, Mario. Okay. Uh, so any anyway, so um, political science and dance. Yeah. And are you doing? Do you do you have an interest in communications? Is that what? Why you're in this department?
2: Um, yeah, basically, it was more of a survival thing because we were all like kicked off of campus during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so most of my uh, dance work had to be online. We had to submit videos because there's only so much you can see on a Zoom screen, mm-hmm. um, especially for the professors. So basically keep tabs on us, make sure that we're improving. We had to submit video assignments and stuff like that. So that's why I'm here. I hope to develop that skill further and kind of take it into hopefully working around D.C. I don't know exactly what. I really like doing what I'm doing here at Heritage. So.
1: Now, you mentioned survival. Now, one thing I do know about you is that you're interested in one element of survival that is absolutely, absolutely critical. You like guns. Is that right? Do I remember that correctly?
2: <laughs> yep. With, um,
1: what is your gun thing?
2: Um, my gun thing, basically, my dad um, has been taking me to the range since I was about 12 years old. Okay. Um, he's really into it. He doesn't have a big collection, but he has like a sizable collection. Okay. And we've done, like, I've shot a lot of different stuff, uh, not only- Anything,
1: some, any animals- do you hunt?
2: Uh, no, no, no. Oh, okay. I don't hunt. Just a hobbyist okay. basically. Okay. Okay. So yeah. I have had the opportunity to shoot fully automatic. Yeah. Which was crazy, a lot of fun. There is like this convention up in Pennsylvania that happens like twice a year that we were that my dad and I had gone to.
1: Is that um, where you're from is Pennsylvania?
2: Uh no. I'm oh. I grew up here in Virginia. Okay. Um, went to school in Massachusetts. My dad did too when we first came here to okay. the States. So I say I'm from, I grew up in Virginia. We're from Massachusetts kind of thing. Okay. So, yeah. Cool. All
1: right. One last question on guns. Do you have a favorite gun or a favorite caliber?
2: Um, I am in love with my Glock 48. Okay. Um, it's small. Um, it's slim. Uh, it's really easy to clean. So okay. low maintenance-ish kind of thing. yeah.
1: Very good. Well, as much as I would like to sit here and talk about guns and freedom (laughs) for all, for the next hour, I can't. I have a job to do. We have to produce a podcast that has something to do with energy, and that's what we're going to do. Now, since Lauren's not here, Sandra, you're going to be my banter partner. All right? You ready? All right. Now, um, if there's one thing that we know about society today, I think... We know lots of things. But one thing is that technology is expanding, right? Yeah. We have AI trying to push EVs down our throat, but even absent that, there's still EVs. Uh, more people are buying EVs. Mm-hmm. We all know about computers and phones and all of that. I mean, literally, seems like everything is being digitized. One thing that folks often don't think about, though people listening to the Power Hour a few months ago, we touched on this a little bit, all these things require Energy, lots and lots of energy. Now, if there's one thing we know about policy when it comes to energy, Sandra, what would you say it is?
2: Um, making sure that energy is affordable. For well, that, that, the that would
1: public. be what we would want. But yeah. what I would argue is that the main element of policy today is they're making energy less affordable. They're thwarting the development of energy. They're making it scarce. They're making it more difficult to develop and distribute. So mm-hmm. this, to me, seems like a pretty big problem. We're becoming more technologically advanced and more technologically more than that, dependent, and that's going to require far more energy, yet we have less, much less of it. And we're, I shouldn't say we have much less of it. We are headed towards a trajectory of producing much less of it.
2: Mm.
1: That's a problem, I would say. Now, don't you wish... Given this problem that we both agree that we have Mm -hmm. and that I don't know much about it and I don't want to be presumptuous, but I'm going to presume you don't know a lot about it. No, I don't. (laughs) You know, it'd be nice if we had someone here to talk to us about this. Oh, yeah. You know, it'd be even better (laughs) if we had two people here to talk to us Mm -hmm. about this issue. And you know what? You know, what makes the power hour so awesome. What is that? We have not one but two people. Now I'm going to introduce you to them. I'm going to introduce everyone to them. I already gave you a sneak peek. I'm welcome, welcoming back to the Power Hour our old friend, Mario Loyola. Mario, who is a senior research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation on uh, energy and environment. He does a little bit of everything and knows a lot about a lot of stuff. Mario, welcome back to the Power Hour. Thank you for having me. Last but not least, second but not for any reason other than that's how I have them listed. We have a new guest of the Power Hour, Annie Chestnut Tudor. She is our policy analyst for tech policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Annie, how are you today?
3: Hello, good. I've been restraining myself from commenting. I've been wanting to say things, but I didn't <laughs> want to get in trouble like Mario did. So no, you, I'm free. I can talk. <laughs> you, you, you could have
1: talked. I would have given you a hard time, but p- giving each other a hard time is part of the Power Hour. Um, now, we don't have a ton of time today, and I've already spent way too much time talking to Sandra, but I now want to just take a couple of minutes and talk to you, Annie, because I already talked <laughs> to Mario and introduced everyone to him. Let's get to know you a little bit. Now, um, you come from Capitol Hill. Correct. And Career-wise. Career-wise. You you don't come. You weren't born born on Capitol Hill, (laughs) (laughs) which is good. Um, What did you do on Capitol Hill?
3: I worked in the Senate for eight years. I was with Senator Johnson and um, actually started as a communications assistant before moving to the legislative shop, as we like to call it. And um, my... Final position there, I was his Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee staffer. He was on that committee, um, which includes tech and telecom issues. Um, I also handled energy for a while, so have a little bit of background on that general topic. And then I worked for Senator Lee, uh, still handling Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee issues before coming here. So Lee and Johnson. Yes, You are are a freedom lover then. Yeah.
1: Nice, nice, nice. Those are two great senators for sure. Now, what do you do when you're not tech policying?
3: Yeah. Um, Well, I also have another part-time job, or I have a part-time job uh, working at a winery in Virginia. Okay. And um, mainly doing- Are you a snob
1: and I didn't realize it?
3: I really don't like that term or i feel like yeah so you are you just (laughs)
1: don't want to call yourself that is that what you're saying
3: i like to talk about wine i like to try fine wines yes but i also love a good wine that is a bang for your buck i mean if you can
1: would you drink it out straight out the bottle no oh man all right i'll still like since you're here we'll still do the podcast (laughs) but i have questions have i ever
3: (laughs) maybe i'm just teasing well that's Um, cool though yeah, so there's that. I've taken some wine classes to kind of boost my knowledge, and then I don't know. I've I've run some marathons, half marathons okay. here and there. I kind of go through waves of, I'm training for a race, and then I don't run at all. Okay. Training for a race, don't run at all for a few months. Okay. Um, and then yeah, I don't know.
0: Mario, you know. are you a wine guy? Um, I have made a serious effort to be a wine guy.
1: Okay. We're on a, on a scale of one to, do you think that you could have a reasonable conversation about wine with
0: Annie? Well, having lived in Washington D.C. for many years, I can speak authoritatively on a broad range of topics that I don't really know anything about. <laughs> okay, so yes, all right, very good. All right,
1: so we've got that. Now we know who Annie is. She is a wine sipping snob. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> totally kidding. Wine connoisseur, um, wine
3: connoisseur, can we say wine, that? Wine connoisseur,
1: Maybe? yeah, you can say that. Great, so now let's get to the topic at hand. We there, there are two things happening here. There's this expansion of technology and the energy that it's going to need, and the, and then we have these energy policies that are making energy far more scarce and more expensive and more difficult to produce and distribute. And given that technology will be a is and will continue to be a central pillar of society, of our economy, of culture. This seems like a problem that we need to understand and fix. So um, I know you both have broad expertise across the spectrum of these issues, but what I want to start with is um, we'll start with Annie. I'm going to ask you, what sort of energy – requirements are we thinking about? Like what, what is it that's driving um, in, in tech space and what's driving this? And then Mario, I'm going to come back to you and I know you'll have stuff to say on the tech side too, but I want to get from you sort of what are the energy challenges and then we'll get into some solutions and we'll see where the conversation goes. So if everyone's cool with that, Annie, what is like, what's happening in the tech space that is causing this greater demand in energy?
3: Yeah, well, since the um, introduction of ChatGPT, everyone has been talking about AI or like trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean for the future? Um, And
1: ChatGPT is an AI system? Yeah. What do we call it?
3: um, It's generative AI and... um, Artificial intelligence. Yes, artificial intelligence. Yeah, good to make that clear. And it's... But it's all text, so you can submit a prompt. You could you could say, um, write uh, show notes in the voice of Jack Spencer um, for a podcast. And um, it would do that. And, I mean, sometimes it's kind of funny. I've done it. I've done it for fun a few times, and there's always kind of weird phrasing occasionally. Um, but that suddenly everyone's talking about how it can revolutionize. Now, like AI is actually different levels of AI have actually been around. It's not that ChatGBT is like the first um, introduction of AI, but it, it was a new one. And uh, there have been a few articles that I've seen recently uh, talking about the energy consumption that AI requires, that the some of the headlines... Uh, Generating an AI image takes up the same amount of energy as charging your smartphone. Um, The text is a little less energy, about 16% of your smartphone.
1: So in other words, when people ask AI to do something, it takes a lot of energy to do that thing. Yes. And as more and more people ask AI... I would imagine there are two things that are happening. We, there are more of us asking AI or using AI to achieve a task. Mm-hmm. And those tasks are becoming more and more complex. And that that would probably result in a um, a compounding impact on energy usage over time.
3: Yeah. And then energy demand, right? I mean, just it'll mean that we need... Even more energy, more electricity.
1: Yeah, and and that's just the AI side. There's the whole. And I didn't mention this in the beginning, but I think that this is one that um, that will also be a big deal, which is the whole um, crypto side. Yeah, both um, you know, just the
3: the, mi- the mining,
1: the mining, just the just the uh, the expansion of blockchain as a tool for any number of financial um trans uh, financial activities. Seems like it will have – and then you'll probably have – I don't know about this, but I'm just guessing. a You will have a coming together of AI and and um, blockchain stuff, and it just exacerbates – I shouldn't say exacerbate because that implies a neg- negative. I don't think this is negative at all. Um, it, it, it amplifies all of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the servers um – require that's why the blockchain that uses so much energy because it requires so many servers and then the servers get really hot so then they have to cool it so also using a lot of water as a resource there's some article i saw that um i can't remember now but there's some warehouse of servers where they said they there was actually a cloud because of the humidity, mm-hmm. they, it actually created an artificial cloud and it started raining on the servers, which is kind of well, hilarious. That but sounds it's...
1: like a perfect eco, perfect <laughs> ecosystem that they've created.
3: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, Mario, let me follow up the question that I gave to Annie. I'd like to hear any thoughts you have on that. But I'd like you to get into some of the energy problems that we're that we're facing.
0: Yeah, I mean, just remember that what's on a on a microchip. Remember, I forget what it, the person who said that microchips will double every year or reduce in size by half every year or something. What's Moore's here, law is that that more. Yeah, so one of those. Uh, you know, so these components, hard drives, set, CPUs, graphics processing units, GPUs have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller every year, but they pack a lot more energy into them every single year at the same time. And I have, you know, a fairly fancy computer uh, that I built myself last year that I'm pretty proud of. It's got a Intel... CPU in it, and the CPU is small. It's the size of a, you know, like a thick credit card or something. But it's surrounded by all these fans, and I always wondered, what do you need all these fans for? Well, when I'm doing video editing on this computer, or let's say someone, a friend of mine, is playing video games on this computer. Of course, I don't have time to play video games. But let's just say someone's playing video games on this computer. It will heat up the entire room to several degrees hotter than the rest of the house. Just because of the electricity on this credit card sized CPU. And when you look at a data center, I mean, a, a single data center can consume, you know, 7, kilowatt, um, seven kilowatts per rack. With, with AI, uh, that can go up to 30 or 40 kilowatts per rack. You know an ai uh the the head of of Google was talking about how a an a search assisted by artificial intelligence a google search normal keyword google search assisted by artificial intelligence could consume ten or twenty times more electricity than a simple keyword search uh and so what we're looking at in the age of AI is not just a dramatic increase, an exponential increase in the energy requirements of the tech sector, in the electricity requirements of the tech sector. And that's going to make America's you know continued dominance of high tech increasingly dependent on affordable, reliable electricity. And that's something that we shouldn't take for granted. We've always had it. We've always had it. And it's one of the reasons that we've been able to That U.S. manufacturing has been able to compete with Europe and with Japan and now China uh, is that we've always been able to deliver, you know, affordable, competitive electricity. We've always had energy abundance. And in the time that, uh, you know, Germany's uh, European electricity is now three times what it was, uh, three times more expensive than it was just a few years ago in 2019, that's partly a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, disrupting the supply of natural gas. But it's also a result of, you know, we've talked about this many times, Jack, of Germany uh, pursuing this, this heedless rush to s- deploy solar and wind uh, without realizing that it's making the entire electricity grid in Germany inhospitable to nuclear for reasons that we can get into. And so Germany's had to retire its entire nuclear fleet, not just because of the in- political influence of the Greens, of the Green Party, but also because the grid is now becoming incompatible with nuclear because all of this solar and wind... Uh, is so intermittent and so variable that it requires different kinds of energy sources to back it up. And so as a result of all of this, electricity prices are now three times what they were in 2019, and the European Commission has started to sound the alarm. A few weeks ago, the European Commission published a a very alarming report, uh, alarming if you live in Europe, that industrial production in the year to November has plummeted by almost 10%, uh, and that businesses across sectors are reporting... Uh, curtailments in investment decisions in capital investments for the future because they're concerned about uh, the instability and uh, price rises in electricity and so getting back to th- the US has been able to maintain electricity for many up until the beginning of the Biden administration just a little bit more expensive than in China and because American workers are much more productive than workers in China being you know much more highly skilled and a lot better planning and equipment and everything so our in industries have been able to compete with the challenge from China up until now but suddenly, we face a situation where Europe, I mean, Friedrich Hayek might say that the United States is headed down the same road to energy serfdom as the Germans have produced and uh, have pursued. And so electricity is suddenly, you know, we haven't talked about this a lot, but electricity is suddenly 30% uh, higher than it was at the beginning of the Biden administration. And that's not even taking into account the electric vehicle mandates, and the power plant rules that Biden's Environmental Protection Agency has proposed, which if implemented as proposed, would wreck the electricity grid of the United States and send electricity prices potentially even significantly higher than in Europe. And so we could be facing, you know, we could be shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of making the single most important variable factor of production, of industrial production, which is the price of electricity so expensive that we have that we could be doing what europe has done which is to make their exports totally uncompetitive and if we make our exports tot- if we make our exports totally uncompetitive the future belongs to china and i would say that the problem is even more acute with high tech Uh, Because now we're embracing, you know, across the gamut, we're embracing antitrust policies that are uh, interfering with the efficient allocation of resources and innovation uh, in the tech sector. Uh, We're embracing a series of policies that are a delight to the Chinese Communist Party because they're uh, going to make much more difficult for America to maintain its dominance of technology and remember the united states has been at the forefront of every technological revolution almost since the beginning of the industrial revolution the last century has been a century of one amazing american innovation technological innovation after another and you know we really risk all of that coming to an end here at the at the very moment where the rise of artificial intelligence is going to is going to make the price of electricity And cheap electricity even more important than it has ever been.
1: So I guess kind of what we're – what we are anticipating if we stay on the same trajectory that we're on is that as tech – as the tech economy grows and requires more energy at the same time our energy economy shrinks, that's going to make the United States less able to engage in that space and we'll be pushing it off to others, predominantly probably China – Um, Who don't have those same constraints. Is that a fair synopsis of what we're facing?
0: Uh, 100%. And, And nobody gains, by the way, because we've, you know, it's amazing how effective the environmental activists are at shooting themselves in the foot. Because the net effect of this, among other things, I mean, the, the whole motivation of this is supposed to be climate action and reducing carbon emissions. The net effect of this is going to be to push industrial production to places like China and India, which have much more dependent on coal than we are. And much looser environmental constraints. And the net effect is going to be potentially to the net effect of all these policies is potentially going to be a per, you know, per unit increase in carbon emissions. When you know, the greatest uh, reduction in carbon emissions that the world has ever seen has come from the shale revolution and the switch from coal to natural gas in the United States.
1: Well, I guess that's one positive aspect, given that the amount of carbon that societies emit is a ge- is generally a good indicator of how successful they are. So I'm all for the increasing in carbon emissions. Just wanted to put my uh, opinion out there on that. <laughs> yeah, And I, it looks like you're going to say something.
3: Yes, I've compiled some data and right now... 79% of our consumption of energy comes from petroleum, natural gas, and coal. Only 12% comes from renewable energy. And on top of that, the cost for the levelized cost of electricity for new coal and natural gas plants is $61 per megawatt hour, but the cost for renewable resources, the cost is $72 per megawatt hour. So renewable is more expensive. It also currently has a much lower capacity. And when you also read headlines like estimates that in 2027, AI servers could use up to 85 to 134 terawatt hours annually. And to put that into perspective, that's similar to what Argentina, the Netherlands and Sweden use for their electricity per year. I mean, it's just not convincing that, like, renewable energy would be able to meet the demand of these technologies. Yeah. And, like, we have a huge gap if we keep making it harder and harder for us to extract other resources that, you know, the more fossil fuel resources, as they're called.
1: It's a huge problem. I think that's something that Mario was getting to. Mario, isn't it the case that even the numbers that Annie pointed out aren't completely transparent, because even though renewables, even though renewables from a percentage standpoint represent a growing amount of energy, that's not really a fair way to look at it, because they all require um, hydrocarbons or nuclear to back
0: them up. Yeah, hydrocarbons, actually. (laughs) I mean, they require, it's solar and wind require hydrocarbons preferentially to nuclear. To back them. bus. Yes, up, right? yeah. Uh, and so that's one of the things that, you know, I'm going to be coming out with an article at uh, the Daily Signal here uh, in the next couple of days that says that not only uh, are the climate activists putting all their eggs in one basket of solar and wind, it's the wrong basket. Because what they should be doing if they were pursuing their objective of a zero carbon electricity grid in a rational way, is building out nuclear, which you, the mm-hmm. International Energy Agency and other international organizations that have totally drunk the climate Kool-Aid have been recommending for years that we need to achieve net zero. We're going to need to double or triple worldwide nuclear capacity. And instead, by you know putting now th- nearly 30% and increasing every year of the California grid is solar and wind, and other renewables like hydropower, you know, these they're they're creating a, a situation like Germany has done, where you cannot increase in nuclear on the grid because these sources are incompatible with it. What you actually have to increase, what you actually have to transition to to back those those sources uh, re- of intermittent renewable power up, is inefficient, comparatively inefficient, peaker and intermediate natural gas plants. So the, the utilities that right now are are running the hyper-efficient, large, combined-cycle natural gas plants. And by combined cycle, we mean a combustion cycle and a steam cycle that depends on the exhaust from the combustion cycle. That's what we mean by combined cycle. Those plants, because they have boilers, take a long time to wrap up and down. And so they cannot be used as dispatchable power that you can dial up or down from one hour to the next to back up these renewable sources. And so... These utilities are gonna to have to dismantle the second cycle and just be reliant on the combustion cycle, which is much more carbon emits much more carbon per unit of electricity than a combined cycle plant. So this stuff is just counterproductive across the board. And you know, to what was said a moment ago, I mean just think about this. If Google, if if all of the big tech companies, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Meta, Facebook, those four companies alone. If the current trajectory of energy requirements continues on pace for the next uh, six years, by 2030, driven by artificial intelligence, those four companies alone, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Meta, could be consuming more electricity than Australia. Not just Argentina, but one of the world's biggest industrial economies, Australia. Okay, And so this is going to be, where's this electricity going to come from? And then we talk about, like I mentioned before, the the electric vehicle mandate, which would require two-thirds of vehicles produced in the United States to be electric vehicles by 2032, which is just eight years away from now, and which no car manufacturer is in a position to comply with. But let's let's assume that you know they whether by reducing their overall production or however they're going to do it, two-thirds of their of the production fleet of vehicles in the United States sold in the United States have to be electric vehicles, that's going to add another 25% of demand to the electricity grid. So we're looking at a situation where between AI and normal population growth and the electric vehicle mandates, we could be adding 50, 60, 70% to electricity demand in the United States at the same time as a bunch of carbon emission standards on the power plant side are going to severely restrict the ability of the electricity grid to grow at all. And so what we're going to what we're going to be looking at is uh is you know potential ener- is is real energy scarcity for the first time ever in the history of the United States. We're I, going to be I, having energy scarcity.
1: I think that um I agree with everything you said, but it's not that the what you just described won't happen. Well, it will end up in energy scarcity. But what I think will happen is the people will end up having not having access to energy. And what I see happening on the tech side is that they're not going to... I think... This is my theory or whatever. I think that they are hedging against that future. And that's where I want to take the conversation now. In Because they are investing in, in small modular nuclear reactors, things like that. I don't think that they're doing it because they want to reduce carbon dioxide or anything else. I think that they see that they will not have access to the energy that they need Mm. through normal channels and they are taking it upon themselves to ensure they have access to that energy. And they're willing to pay that nuclear premium so that they can continue doing business. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I want to get into the part of the conversation of what people are doing and sort of how do we respond to this. And I think that the tech companies will be just fine because they are actually building, they are seeking the SMR stuff which is a great option for them.
3: I mean, that. well, that's really interesting and honestly smart on their part, because if they require so much energy, well, they also need reliable energy, so they don't want to deal with grid blackouts. And this probably sounds simple, but it it makes sense to me that nuclear nuclear and AI going together. Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Mario, what do you think? Uh, Yeah, I just think that their companies like Google and, you know, Amazon are facing a stark choice here, which is that they either have to secure reliable sources of cheap electricity, cheap and reliable electricity here at home, or they're going to have to move their operations somewhere else. And that's a choice that we're going to see unfolding just in the next few years.
1: And one of the results of that will be, I predict, if we stay on the same policy trajectory, is that they will have the energy they need we won't. Mm. There will be tremendous societal impact of these green policies. But as is always the case, established interests, powerful interests, they'll be just fine. And that's what I think you see happening right now. Here's another problem, I think, with all of this. And this is when I start getting all excited is that a lot of people like talking about the role of nuclear energy and all this. And I'm an advocate of nuclear. I've spent a career talking about why I think nuclear is important. I have very little faith that SMRs or nuclear in general are going to meet this growing requirement because I don't see how when I look at the policies that are being proposed, the best they do is to subsidize a handful of nuclear plants. And that is not how a sustainable industry has ever been built. And it won't be built this way. And especially whenever it's it's so policy dependent, the whole idea, the way people are looking at it now is that nuclear is a good choice, not because it produces reliable, clean affordable energy, but because it's carbon free. And I, despite what people think, I I just, I can't get on board with, and I don't think that society will over the long term be on board with the idea that reducing carbon is the primary driver of energy policy or social policy. And that once that starts to fade, because the whole push on nuclear has been hooked onto the carbon wagon, that all of the support, the things that we're driving it forward will dissipate. And I think that that will, I think that right now, we would be far better off to see nuclear, to, to get the government largely out of nuclear, certainly the business side, and allow nuclear to percolate in those niche areas of the co- economy where it makes sense. I think that might yield some long-term benefit, but I don't know.
3: Well, um, and we have the problem. I think the one of the barriers, unfortunately, with nuclear is that we still don't have a long-term storage solution. We are so close to Yucca Mountain being fully approved. I think it's even been constructed just last minute. I mostly, think. Okay, mostly. I think the local, the legislature leaders in Nevada changed course because of the environmentalist concerns of the storage um, of the spent fuel, well, even what? though isn't it, isn't it less than like an Olympic-sized swimming pool?
1: Yeah. So true? if you if you take all the nuclear waste that's ever been produced in the United States, it would fit on a football field, football field, 10 meters high. So that's yeah. how deep it would be. That's volumetrically because nuclear waste has other elements that you have to deal with, like the radio toxicity. The waste has to be spread out. But volumetrically, that's how much has been produced if you take all. And yeah, so so it's not very much waste. I'm a yucca. I also believe in yucca. I I totally agree with your assessment, your assessment that the lack of a waste solution is a huge barrier that is lar- has largely been ignored or is largely being ignored i'm though not a fan of the current system as it is in law that the federal government's in charge of nuclear waste and that it should put it in yucca rather i think that the waste producers should mm. be in charge of the waste and yucca should be an option so i don't know that's s- sort of how i look at it and, uh, mario i know you have done work on nuclear and you have thoughts on it where where are you on on nuclear energy stuff and and its role in tech and what do we need to do and that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah, I think you know part of the reason that we don't have a lot more nuclear in the United States is because there's such an incredible you know straitjacket of red tape, uh, regu- regulatory red tape uh, that you have to get through to build a nuclear plant. And ever since the accident at Three Mile Island during the Carter administration. Uh, I think there have been two nuclear plants built in the United States or something like that. Uh, and so all of – we have 100 nuclear plants in operation in the United States. They were all built before the Reagan administration almost. Uh, we have, and, j-
1: j- not to interrupt you, but j- before – I just want to – we have 93. It will soon be 94. Um, we've had two new ones built. Well, there was one that was put in mothballs that was – Brought online a few years ago. So anyway, to to clarify what the current numbers are, I just wanted to throw that out there. And I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mario. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So nine, so just under a hundred. And you know, according to the International Energy Agency, which again is very drunk into the climate Kool Aid, uh, we would need to double or triple uh, the number of nuclear reactors. Well, the nuclear reactor capacity that we have. Uh, here. And the reason that that's impossible is because of this incredibly incoherent system of regulations that, among other things, has a lot of redundancy and failsafe. you know, for nuclear safety. And of course, that's something that people are very worried about. That's something that people were, you know, this was, people don't remember, but during the Cold War, it was five minutes to midnight or whatever. People were very worried about uh, nuclear holocaust during most of the Cold War. And after Three Mile Island, and especially after the terrible Chern- Chernobyl reactor, people, you know continue to be very paranoid about nuclear safety. But the fact is that in the United States, nuclear has an almost completely unbroken safety record. And uh, even Three Mile Island was, a, you know, the, the safeguards worked at uh, Three Mile Island. And uh, the reality is that we could significantly streamline the regulation for nuclear and keep it just as safe as it is, or safer, and get the United States government. You know, the United States government has a monopoly position in several parts of the production chain, if you want to call it, for nuclear, because it's also, it also routinely dumps nuclear fuel on the market from, you know, the entire store of weapons and decommissioned weapons and all the weapons that it got from the START treaties with Russia, where the where Russia was sending nuclear fuel to the United States so that we could dump it on the market over here and this is all the 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 entry of the United States of the federal government into the market as a market participant has really made it almost impossible for a rational Coherent, stable, efficient market to arise in the United States. And that's something that we should really be dealing with. I mean, nuclear is a great power source. It's potentially, if you can fix the, reg- the regulatory framework, a very cheap power source and essentially limitless source of electricity. And uh, it's the only way that we can, you know, get both the climate lobby what it wants in terms of a zero carbon, zero emissions uh, electricity grid, and uh, in the long run, be able to, to um, supply the country with zero emissions, uh, with zero, you know, zero pollution electricity that's reliable and safe. So, uh, yeah, all in on nuclear. And, you know, it's another one area where we really urgently need sweeping reforms to the environmental regulations.
3: Um, And another reason that, well, at least that these companies like OpenAI and Google should be supporting nuclear is because Democrats like Governor Gavin Newsom are coming for them and requiring climate disclosure laws for all large companies. I'm not sure how they define it, but um, oh, here it is. Private companies that have a global revenue over one billion have to disclose how much carbon they produce, so all of their AI and any other energy consumption they're going to have to report and I mean who knows what that'll lead to a new tax i'm sure they'll find something
1: it'll certainly be a sort of tax because all of those things cost money, and ultimately all of that carbon reporting will be folded into the processes that are used to regulate carbon. I mean, that's what it's all doing mm-hmm. is building a database so that they can be um, – it can be taxed one way or the other. Look, I, I agree with everything that you both said, but I just can't uh, – Mario, I know you've known me well enough. I can't have a conversation of where carbon comes up where I can't just say what I think, which is – That I really want nuclear to be successful, but I want it to be successful absent the carbon piece of it. Like, I get that the carbon piece is why the left... First of all, the carbon piece is not why the left should be supportive of nuclear. The left should be supportive of nuclear because it provides clean, affordable, efficient energy. The same reason, regardless of one's political standing, you should be supportive of nuclear. And my fear is just that if we build it too close to the carbon thing that ultimately the carbon thing is going to go away and so then might nuclear. And so, I mean, nuclear has been competitive with hydrocarbons in the past and it can be in the future. The key is to do what Mario said and have a reasonable um, regulatory structure that would allow its costs to come down by virtue of free markets not to be artificially inflated by virtue of bad policy and i guess that's sort of where i come down on it
0: yeah and i'll just respond you know and it's something to kind of take a step back and think about uh do you are you are you familiar with the painter Caspar david friedrich this German 19th century painter um, he's I'm sort of not. like the, para- the paradigmatic uh, you know, German romantic painter, and I go back to this great transformation that happened in Western intellectual history between the Enlightenment, and it was during the Enlightenment that America was founded and the Constitution was written. During, you know in the Enlightenment, our political philosophers thought that the highest achievement of nature was reason. And, and at the pinnacle of nature stood, you know, mankind, guided by reason. And reason was the way to achieve all, everything, you know, justice and and a good society and everything else. And then at the beginning of the industrial revolution, we have this new movement arise in Germany, where so many bad ideas have started, that said that no man, mankind, is actually spoiling the environment you know and Casper uh, David Friedrich and this is German romanticism and this became to me the this is the how I really understand what it what is otherwise very difficult to understand which is why the environmental why environmental advocates pursue so many policies that are counterproductive to what they say they want we saw uh, an effort to reform. Uh, if you remember when the inflation, re- so-called Inflation Reduction Act, one of the most hilarious misnomers, one of the most tragicomical misnomers in the history of of American legislation, uh, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act was should even be liable criminally liable for false advertising just for calling it that. But anyway, topic for another show. The so-called Inflation Reduction Act had a title that was called the Mansion Bill by Senator Joe Manchin that was supposed to introduce sweeping reforms into the permitting system and, you know, compliant environmental reviews under the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, which I spent several years working on at the White House under the Trump administration. And Senator Bernie Sanders and the Progressive Caucus in the House blocked the Manchin bill, because it would have, you know, made life marginally easier for the permitting of natural gas pipelines, even though the main beneficiary of the mansion bill would have been to speed up permitting for transmission lines and solar projects and renewable energy projects. And, you know, I thought to myself, is it possible that they, that they hate fossil fuels so much that they hate fossil fuels more than they love renewable energy? And in, and in reality, they hate economic development more than they love renewable energy right right and so you know they supported under the obamas clean power plan they supported the transition from coal to natural gas but only as a halfway house because the next victim was going to be natural gas and you know they block every single solar project they're in favor of solar it's sort of what Paul Johnson said about intellectuals, that they love people in general, but not in particular. And, you know, so they love solar power in general, but not, not in particular, because then they, then you actually propose a utility-scale solar project in the middle of nowhere in Nevada. And guess who shows up to block it? Environmental advocacy groups. And so at the end of the day, what explains that, you know, they're not, they say that they're for renewable energy and for reducing carbon emissions. But actually what they're, what they are for is stopping capitalism. And if you listen to Bill McKibben and all of these kinds of Naomi Klein and all of these kinds of environmental advocates, what they—they're not really pro-environment. They're—they're ju- just anti-capitalist, right? Right? And they're just really—they're co- just really communists at the end of the day, is what we—we Cuban Americans yeah. would call them, right?
1: Well, so would us. Uh... <laughs> I was going to say something horrible, but I'm glad that I didn't. Um, so do uh, any, so do all red-blooded Americans uh, agree with that. They are communists. And that's why we shouldn't buy into their or even, I think, even give their stupid carbon arguments the time of day because it's all just made up. It's a head fake. Mario, thank you. Thanks to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. Please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. And email us at thepowerhour@heritage.org. In fact, I think I forgot to remind you about that email earlier in the show. Email me at thepowerhour@heritage.org. Tell me what you thought of this show. Tell me what you want to hear on future shows. Tell me whatever you want. You can just email me to say hi. As I mentioned earlier, everyone's leaving me. So just, you know, be a friend. Now, before we end, Annie and Mario, is there anything else that you'd like to add Annie, we'll start with you. Nothing from Annie. Mario, I know you have at least one thing to add.
0: I just remember my chemistry professor in high school had a great, you know, lots of great sayings. And one of them, which he used particularly with me, uh, was... Mario don't practice stupidity. you're so good at it already. and uh, I would just, I would just sometimes want to remind uh, environmental advocacy environmental advocates to not practice stupidity. they're already good at it already they, they just if we could only guide them towards a rational uh, strategy for accomplishing the goals they say they want, we would we would all be much better off. Yes uh,
1: absolutely. And in no area is that perhaps more consequential than technology and the need for energy. Now, before we go, Annie, I need to ask, do you have anything coming up that you want to bring Mm. to people's attention? Are you on social media that you want to or where can people find you? That kind of thing. Yeah.
3: Please follow me on Twitter at Annie Chestnut. I right now I think I have 11 followers. So would love to increase that.
1: We are going to blow it up. Come on, (laughs) Power Hour.
3: Uh, Yeah, nothing really. I, I just I was in a panel yesterday that was a different topic on some of the social media platforms, failures to protect kids online. So you can find that the video of the live stream online on YouTube or Heritage's website if you're interested in that topic.
1: Very good, Mario. What do you? Where can people find you? What do you have coming up? I know you have a piece coming out soon on um, on Europeans, uh, or you, you just did one on the industrialization. Anyway, you tell you tell us what we, what you have coming up.
0: Yeah, so I just had a piece in the Hill uh, talking about uh, this European Commission report I mentioned at the top of the hour uh, about how industrial production in Europe is in free fall because of uh, tripling of electricity prices in just a few years. I've got another piece coming out in the Daily Signal about how I mentioned environmental advocates are not only putting all their eggs in one energy basket, but it's the wrong energy basket for what they say they want, which is renewable and wind, which is locking them into, like I said, uh, intermediate, uh, inefficient uh, fossil fuel power. And yeah, otherwise I've got, uh, you know, we've got. I'm a professor at Florida International University where I put together a big conference every year called the FIU Environment Forum. This is going to be on February 22nd and 23rd, on February 22nd, we're going to have a great debate that's going to be live streamed by Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, that's going to be about the promise, the so-called promise, and pitfalls of climate policy. Nice. Uh, and uh, there's going to be Kent Lassman, president of Competitive Enterprise Institute, and Carrie awesome, uh, Emanuel of Massachusetts Institute of Technology and uh, Susan Glickman of the Clio Institute in Florida three very very different perspectives on climate policy and uh, it's going to be a university wide event that will be live streamed at Foreign Policy Magazine so I'll put I'll be up with a piece at the Daily Signal uh, so that people can uh, find their way over to it but if you're uh, you know I timed this conference very deviously for the end of February because I remember when I lived in Washington D.C. that's when I was about ready to slit my wrists uh, uh, with the weather Uh, so if you if you're sick of winter and you want to come down to miami uh, somewhere warm and sunny where you can enjoy the beach and come learn a lot at a great environmental conference come down to the fiu environment forum february february 22nd and 23rd in miami on the campus of florida international university you're more than welcome
1: awesome sounds good now sandra thank you for your help do you have any final thoughts on this conversation
2: Oh, no, it was just a pleasure just well, listening to all of you, like, go off. <laughs> <laughs> Nuclear energy, um, AI, things of that sort. I really appreciate um, all of the new information.
1: <laughs> well, there you have it. Sandra, you did awesome. Thank you so much for your help. Um, remember to email us at the powerhour@heritage.org. Thank you, Annie Chestnut Tudor and Mario uh, Loyola. Thank you both for being a guest, and most importantly... Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time.